Welcome to Practicing Connection, a podcast exploring the personal stories and collective practices that empower us to work together to improve our resilience and readiness in a rapidly changing world. Here to start the conversation are Jessica Beckendorf and Bob Birch. Hi, and welcome to the Practicing Connection podcast. It's great to have you here with us. Today, we'll be hearing from Jessica about an interview that she did with Dr. Ron Avi Astor. Dr. Astor holds the Marjorie Crump Chair Professorship in Social Welfare at the UCLA Luskin School of Public Affairs with a joint appointment in the UCLA Graduate School of Education and Information Studies. Since the 1980s, Dr. Astor and his colleagues had been working on addressing school safety issues. His work caught the attention of several military-connected school districts in Southern California and prompted them to request his help on what they perceived as a school bullying issue. Jessica, why did you end up talking to Dr. Astor about his work with military-connected schools? I ran across the Building Capacity in Military-Connected Schools project while reading a report from the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine for the work that uh, you and I do on the military family readiness system. The project in this report was held up as an example of a systems approach to a community issue that benefited all families, military and civilian. I was really excited about the approach because it was holistic. It addressed the bigger picture, which um, you know I very much enjoy thinking about, and designed for adaptability and complexity and inclusiveness. It also emphasized the role of connection and community in addressing issues versus designing a program for a single symptom of a larger issue. Um, So here's how Dr. Astor described the project. Yeah, it's a long story, but I'll try and and shorten it a little bit. So, you know, it didn't start out as a military family project or whatever. I mean, uh, my colleague Rami Vembenishti and myself and a a lot of other people have been doing school safety work around the world since the late 80s, mm-hmm. 1980s. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, the, the whole trend in the field, even now to a certain degree, is to create evidence-based programs, lots of programs. Mm-hmm. Uh, what we noticed early on around the world is that these programs actually failed once they got into the field and they were mm-hmm. spread out. So they were good when they were in a research study and you had mm-hmm. a lot of money and people supporting it. And then you know the field and the government were promoting uh, many of these programs, but then they may not have had the capacity, the people to run it, or they didn't have the money. So people were complaining, yeah, it was great when it was here, but the grant left and so did the program or the person went to another job and we don't have anybody here anymore. Or so we heard that all over the world in Europe and Israel and South America. We have projects all over the world. And we came up with a way of thinking called um, WEMA. I sent you the article to mm-hmm. that, which is a welcoming empowerment ground up. So it uses data from the local schools, particularly the kids' voices, and through a survey, uh, and parents, uh, and teachers, and administrators. Instead of using that as data, we never use the word data, we use it as their voice. Mm-hmm. Come back to the school, have uh, focus groups, assembly, and say, this is what y'all said. So there's not one person saying it. There's diversity in opinion. This is what you say is affecting you. This is what you say are your needs. So We've been using that uh, around the world, that kind of process to bring it in and create change from the ground up, a top down, 
uh, since the late 1990s, and Israel adopted that approach for all of its 5,000 schools. Chile has it for most of its schools, 75% of their schools, and Quebec has been using some of the ideas too. And what we like about that is it's not a top-down, here's a program, try and implement it. If you don't, if you do it wrong, you won't get results. It's really listening to the voices of the ground level uh, people who are there. And mm -hmm. what that does is it captures the, the variation in region around issues of culture. So every school is a little bit different. Um, mm -hmm. It may be, uh, you know, in Israel, you'll have different Arab groups or different, even in the same city, a mm -hmm. school, you know, a mile away might have different needs, different thoughts, different religious or cultural issues. So what's really good is that gets kind of wrapped up in the local. And our idea is how do you do that at scale? And how mm -hmm. do you sustain it for a whole country, for 5,000 schools, for 10,000 schools? And uh, we started seeing some really strong results in Israel and Quebec and in Chile that when people were using this ground up across the whole country, getting help and using it as voice and then building their their not just programs, but sometimes they need resources, sometimes they need mm -hmm. people, but they need to retrain people, sometimes they need community partners. Uh, so it was it was more complex. They actually started seeing really big reductions in uh, bullying, in uh, violence, in drug use, uh, and in and in capacity, uh, people like the school climate. We have more people who could work here. I don't feel like everything's on my back. I have more community partners and people I could talk to. So uh, it, it was a very different way of thinking. I really love how Dr. Astor connects communities' support with issues that we've largely left to our schools to solve. Uh, he mentioned this WEMA way of thinking. Can you tell us a little bit about? WEMA and why it's important? Yeah, um, WEMA stands for Welcoming Empowerment Monitoring Approach. Um, it's kind of sounds, um, it sounds like uh, another one of those ac acronyms that we all love so much. Um, <laughs> it's based in the social work field. But what I found really interesting is that it also is a place-based approach. And it's it's based on school communities. Um, and this approach is adaptive to the cultures and traditions of each community. So in this project, what's really interesting about how this played out is that the project team discovered that military and veteran connected families are a distinct cultural group. Here's Dr. Astor talking about what he found when he started working with those military connected schools. But what I was hearing was something that was really uh, actually embarrassing and I was quite ashamed of as a civilian. Um, yeah, they were talking about bullying and being uh, targeted, uh, even weapon use, uh, substance use issues, suicide prevention. But what I didn't realize is that the cultural issue there uh, that was being brought up over and over by kids or teachers or administrators I was meeting with was around um, military family uh, culture and its conflict with civilian culture. Mm. Basically, it, it's not a conflict, it's a neglect of the civilian culture. Mm. So it, it the reason why I said I was embarrassed and ashamed is because I'm a civilian and I was just a, an example of, mm. I've been doing this for years. It was the longest war in our country's history up to that point and ended up being a lot longer than that. 
I didn't spend time thinking about that. I didn't think of the military family or veterans as a diversity group. I didn't mm. think of them as a cultural group. With a, even though they were really a strong cultural group that were devoting their lives to protect mm. our country and places around the world. Yeah, yeah, we said that, but I wasn't. So again, this was being defined as a bullying problem. Mm. Uh, but it was really, uh, uh, yes, there was a bullying problem there, but the piece that was missing was the reason why. Uh, and one of the reasons why was that the civilian culture, the teachers, the principals who were not military families or veteran families, didn't even know that it was there. So here we are in a region mm -hmm. with uh, a lot of bases and a huge number of military families, and they're calling me in just to do a bullying intervention without even discussing or talking about what does it mean to be a military family? What does mm -hmm. it mean that your parents served or that you've been around the world to different places? And we we suspected there were probably families where everything went really well for them and they thrived out of it. But that there were probably some families that this was um, a, a, a burden uh, for a lot of reasons, uh, because mm -hmm. they didn't have enough resources or because they maybe weren't high up on the rank in terms of uh, like socioeconomic, socioeconomic, usually yeah. families tend to have more resources, they have more influence, they could get more treatment, they could get more support. Uh, but then we also saw that the schools where there were teachers and principals that uh, were from military families were reaching out and doing quite a bit more for their own, for their own mm -hmm. group. So it, it changed our my whole thinking on it. You really need to have that whole school whole community approach, and the burden has to be on the civilians, too, yeah. uh, in terms of reaching out. So we actually worked with uh, eight superintendents and, uh, and all the principals of the 145 schools to create a consortium where we would help uh, with our expertise, with the data, with the collection to changing the state, changing the region, so that they could get this ongoing. And one of our rules was we were not going to do anything that can't be sustained afterwards. Right. So we're not going to do any kind of intervention there. And that has been our rule everywhere mm -hmm. we go. When we leave, this has to continue without us. And in fact, get better uh, over time. So, uh, so, so we came up with that each school needs its own data to get its own voice. Mm -hmm. uh, each school needs a way to interpret it. Each school needs a way to connect with all these partnerships. Uh, each school needs a way to exchange good ideas with each other back and forth. And that's how we set up this consortium where the university was kind of this catalyst that helped uh, organize both at the regional level, but also at the individual school level. Uh, and then when we saw things that were really working well, we would try and capture that with the school in our guides, in our videos, in our other things. And then see if instead of doing a program, if we could spread it out so there's pilgrimages between the various schools and the yeah. principals are exchanging with the videos and our guides and our books. Okay, so it sounds like the idea of approaching military families as a distinct cultural group was really transformational in the project. And the approach of engaging local voices in generating solutions and engaging community partners definitely connects this project to the military family readiness system that you mentioned before and just our work together on the Practicing Connection Initiative.
It does. And, and I think it also provides a way of thinking about how we could go about addressing any issue in our communities. So how were the project team able to engage community partners in the safety efforts at each school? A significant part of the project involved using the information gathered from the annual school climate survey. Um, Southern California has this like large, in fact, it might be all of California, has this um, school climate survey that they use to, um, in this project, they used to find the resource deserts. The project team then arranged for NGOs and other partners to connect parents, students, and school personnel directly to the resources they identified as a need in that survey. This was true for each of the school communities involved. So in other words, it wasn't just one large event that covered all of the school districts, you know, one event to rule them all. They actually had um, a number of events for um, each of the school communities. So overall, the project connected school communities to almost 400 NGOs. Um, so some schools, just to give an example, some schools would be visited by NGOs with like financing expertise, depending on what that particular um, area said they needed in that survey. Others would create a partnership with the local YMCA. Um, and again, this was all based on what the students, parents, and staff, and I think this was a really important part of the project, that it was students, parents, and staff had identified as important in the annual survey and, and the follow-up conversations, right? It wasn't actually just the survey. It was, in addition to that, they had follow-up conversations about what was really important to um, the community and what the needs were. And what was cool is that the magic really happened once these partnerships began, because then the project team got out of the way and enabled the connections to continue on their own. Um, again, here's Dr. Astor talking about the improvements the schools experienced. You know, we were called in for school safety bullying behaviors uh, yeah. and, and and substance use. People were concerned in weapon use and even gang affiliation for some of the students, both military mm -hmm. and non-military. Uh, and, um, you know, so those were in there. But we also wanted to see an increase in belongingness, uh, mm -hmm. in a positive school climate, uh, mm -hmm. in caring between kids and kids and teachers and kids, and community resources. So I, and that's what we saw. We saw an mm -hmm. increase in the things that we wanted to that built to capacity and to climate and setting level. And we saw a decrease. And, and those, those were really dramatic decreases, even mm -hmm. on the more severe things, including so the weapon use, for example, we included that. A lot of people were upset about that, that we had weapon mm -hmm. use and suicide and all those things in the survey uh, that students were taught. But it created a door and allowed people to see that this is an issue for both mm -hmm. the military and NAMA, and maybe we should provide more community resources and school-level resources on weapon uh, threat assessment, uh, but also supports that come around that, what that means. And we then see saw really big reductions. Uh, mm -hmm. after we did the education. Uh, some of that was through military, but some of it was also broader. Uh, yeah. So we didn't always do just military, but there were things that affected military families. I think we were very, very careful not to frame everything as only military family, again, the way the DOD does, because of the stigma that comes with it. It's a double-edged sword. 
so uh, the more you define a military family as needing services mm -hmm. and resources, whatever, uh, the more stigmatic it becomes. And what we saw is that there's huge diversity amongst, mm -hmm. uh, you know, they were bringing all these gifts of knowledge of being around the world, of the strength and the courage of the values that they had. But we also saw a large proportion struggling. And that was true in the civilian, too. It's just the mm -hmm. proportions are a little bit different. So uh, that's why continually thinking about the setting and not mm -hmm. the individuals only mm -hmm. is mm -hmm. really important. Uh, even in our mapping and monitoring methods, uh, you know, we're having kids uh, monitor spaces that are safe and times that are unsafe and what mm -hmm. could be done better and which groups are affected more by and why and how they're being responded to. So we move away from this is happening to me alone uh, to what can we do about this setting to make it better. Uh, and that's true at the community level as well, too. So that takes away a little of the stigma because then it's about the place. It's not about a, a person who's... Mm -hmm whose issues are so, you know what I mean? And yeah. I think psychological approaches tend to stigmatize more. Uh, but what we wanted to show is that by making the place better and by mm -hmm. providing more resources and caring, you actually make a lot of individuals feel better and have less issues. Mm -hmm. uh, so, and that's true for the military, non-military kids together. Uh, I don't think we could have sustained those results if we only focused on the military families and kids. Mm -hmm. It had to be a system-wide thing because it was the whole school that didn't have resources. It was the whole school that didn't have pupil personnel. It was the whole school that didn't have an awareness of diversity. And because of we were able to change how kids understood military families, we very quickly realized that some of these were beyond just military kids, as I said. Uh, so mm -hmm. I, I think that mind shift is not always in the family readiness programs. They're very, very focused on military. And that's OK, as mm -hmm. long as they realize that the crux of the problem sometimes is not just lack of services. It's also the relationship with those in the community who don't know who they are. Wow, that's such an important point that Dr. Astor made in that last clip. You know, military families are unique and can be seen as a distinct cultural group. But members of those families, they live, work, and go to school in communities. And the issues and resources in those communities impact them. So it's all happening in context. Yeah, and, you know, I really wanted to find out what advice Dr. Astor would have for other communities who are trying to engage in similar work. So as we ended our, our conversation, I asked Dr. Astor what advice he could give to schools and communities in other areas of the nation. Yeah, I, I think the number one thing has to be is that the change that needs to happen is not in the military families or in services. Mm -hmm. The change has to be in the civilians who live in those communities and their thinking and their structures. And their, mm -hmm. that's important because otherwise you're always stigmatizing and uh, it's not resilient. It's it's just providing a lot of resources to a group who you think don't have those resources or have those skills. I think mm -hmm. if you change the mindset of the civilians who run the civilian structures and then look at capacity widely there, then it becomes a community approach and it changes it to mm -hmm. uh, we have this diversity group that we know that it's there but we didn't ignore we ignored it yeah so or we didn't pay enough attention to so once it becomes part of the community what you do 
you then add all those resources to it. It, it changes yeah. everything. So I think that's a big takeaway. It, if it, it's not just about the military families. It's about the civilian families. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's about the those in charge. The second piece is, is that um, the voices of those military families and kids and the civilians around them uh, should not be like a needs evaluation. Uh, mm -hmm. That needs to be a, a true empowerment um, uh, approach, which means that you have to be flexible in adapting those systems when you hear from them. If the yeah. story is, oh, we heard that, but you know, you need to sign up for this, or this is only available at the base, or this is yeah. da 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 da, or here if you're if you have A, B, and C, okay, but not D, those have to be loosened up so that you could yeah. partner. Uh, with community organizations so that they see the benefit of it. Like one of the biggest pluses for a superintendent is that it's not just the military, all their kids got better. So, th so they have yep. state level reporting and their own views and their academics went up. So, you know, yes, but it was added. So I think if you're thinking about it as a takeaway that way, it's not just a win for the military families. It's the fact that they've all become part of the same American fabric uh, and, and and culture, and they're not separated out. They're part of a visible diversity group. And then I think three, there needs to be a lot of examples of military families and kids that are positive, uh, that are community building oriented, that are not therapeutic alone mm -hmm. or service oriented. So again, the idea of creating a look at the video of a military garden and having mm -hmm. the civilian and military families and kids work together to create that garden, community garden on the school grounds, and then having 90 or something of those where we're working together, we're doing, or yeah. just big celebrations, or, uh, uh, you know, all those things are really meaningful because people then are interacting with each other on a real level. Yeah. Uh, we had Padres events where the civilian, initially people said, oh, it's just military, but we had all the resources and we had um, entire baseball arenas uh, mm -hmm. filled with on the screen, with resources, with all very positive. But the goal there was really to impact the civilians. So they understand yeah. that obviously impacted the military families too. Yeah. They came up with resources, with ideas. So you can't do one without the other from our point yeah. of view. And the easiest, most flexible places to do is the school because Actually, nobody owns the civilian schools, mm -hmm. the community. And so you could do a lot there by partnering with them. And I would urge uh, the readiness to actually partner with every school in the area to make sure all mm -hmm. the teachers, the principals, the communities are at least aware of it. And mm -hmm. then see where the resource deserts are and work very slowly around each school to build as many of those as you can based on the mm -hmm. needs. And they're going to be different. Like uh, the child care ones were one thing. Uh, the family uh, supports were another thing. In another school, we found there were a lot of moms uh, right. that felt very isolated. So we started getting, you know, toddler, mommy and me groups. It yeah. wasn't a one size fits all. So as you just heard, much of the, his advice centers on military families. And I think it's really important to note that about two thirds of military families live in areas outside of installations. So wherever you are, it could make a big difference to even consider whether you have military families in your community and how you might adapt your practices to strengthen their resilience and to strengthen their relationship with the community. But also his advice could translate to how we approach other issues in our communities. Thinking about things like what diverse groups might be affected by or involved in the issue, 
Who has been traditionally ignored? What aren't you seeing? Um, or what don't you think, what do you think you're not seeing? <laughs> uh, right? Sometimes we don't know what we don't know, but um, you can think about what you might not know, right? So what aren't you seeing? How can you get everyone involved in a way that builds relationship and resilience? They took this last question, they really took this to heart with how they designed this this project. Thanks so much, Jessica. Your conversation with Dr. Astor was such a great way to kick off our fourth season of the podcast because we're going to be talking a lot, I think, about the military family readiness system in this season. Military family readiness is complex, and the Department of Defense has identified the military family readiness system. Sometimes you might hear us use the shorthand MFRS as a way to address that complexity. And so projects like the one that you talked to Dr. Astor about uh, are great examples of that system at work. So thanks again for your conversation with Dr. Astor and for sharing it with us in this episode. You know, it was such a pleasure to speak with Dr. Astor and get to know more about this project. I certainly left feeling inspired. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Practicing Connection. You can keep up with Practicing Connection by subscribing to the podcast in your favorite podcast app, by signing up to be part of the Practicing Connection community at oneop.org forward slash practicing dash connection, and by following us on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at Practicing Connection. That's at Practicing CXN. Thanks also to our announcer, Kaylin Goble. Hannah Hyde and Terry Meisenbach for their help with marketing and Nathan Grimm who composed and performed all the music you hear on the podcast. Once again, thank you so much for joining us. Please join us again soon. In the meantime, keep practicing. The Practicing Connection podcast is a production of one Op and is supported by the National Institute of Food and Agriculture, U.S. Department of Agriculture, and the Office of Military Family Readiness Policy, U.S. Department of Defense, under award number 2019-48770-30366.